It is great to be here this morning. It's a beautiful day. And my family and I drove down this morning from Chattanooga. So all the folks at the Chattanooga Church send their love and greetings to each one of you. And um, it's, um, you know, we had a, a nice leisurely drive down I-59. Got here a little early. We weren't really exactly sure how to find the church. So we thought if we get there 45 minutes early, which is what we wound up doing, that's better than coming in later right on time. So it's been a great service already just with the, the hymns that we've sung together and the, with, of course, reading Colossians 1. You know, we sang today already that, that we, we hail the power of Jesus' name and that we are redeemed from, from hell by his blood and that Jesus is pure and brighter than anything else. So we could leave here today, and I think that we would be blessed in just what we've done so far today. So that's good. But we do pray that God would be with us this next hour as we open up his word and read together and discuss his word together. I'd like to talk about sort of the... You know, I mentioned that we're, we're members of the Chattanooga Primitive Baptist Church, and, and so there's a lot of similarities in Primitive Baptist churches that you visit. Uh, this one's no different. You know, there's sort of this, it's a smaller congregation usually than a lot of churches out there today. And you sort of have this feeling of this real sense of fellowship and love in a church like ours and yours at Grace Covenant that's really refreshing. And so, you know, there are a lot of similarities there in regard to that. And the doctrine that we preach is the doctrine of God's sovereignty and that God is sovereign and that Christ is uh, the ruler of all and that we do hell his glorious, wonderful power, the power of Jesus' name. So there are some similarities. And I want to talk today about a church, but I think there's some similarities uh, between our churches today and this church 2,000 years ago. And that is the church, um, a little small church down in a, a, a small province of Rome called Asia Minor, and that is the church at Colossae. So if you would turn with me to Colossians, I'd like to talk about sort of some of the similarities and how Paul, the apostle, wrote to that church to encourage them through some trials and through some tribulations that they were facing. So in Colossians, let's start in chapter 1. You know, if you look at Roman culture and Roman society, there's a lot of similarities between Rome and America today. If you look at sort of what was sort of going on in Rome at that time, there was this thirst for power, this thirst for war, if you were to poll the average citizen of Rome in the first century, they would tell you, hey, I'm a very religious person. Like if there was a Gallup poll that went out all through Rome and said, you know, are you religious? It would come back overwhelmingly, yes, I'm religious. Well, the problem was that they did practice religion. They worshipped many gods. They worshipped perhaps the god of war, Mars, or they worshipped um, Juno, who was the goddess, uh, the, the goddess of all gods, goddesses, sort of the queen of the gods. And they worshipped Jupiter, who was the king of God. So they had, a, they had this sense of worship and religiosity, but they did not worship the one true and living God that we all know this morning. As far as Roman society goes, there were practices there that we would sort of look at today and think, well, that looks very familiar with us today. There was pregnancies that were terminated at will. There were, in fact, I was reading uh, some history of, of, of Rome, and it was very common for mothers to abort their babies, just like it is today. In fact, in America, we've had, I, I read this one statistic, and it may be even higher than this today, but this was a few years ago, that since 73, which was the decision, the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, there have been over 50 million unwanted pregnancies aborted, terminated, a life snuffed out just like that. And so we find our two churches, the Chattanooga Church and the Gatson Church, sort of in this society, in this culture, that's very similar to the church at Colossae that Paul addresses. So I want to talk about some of those similarities. And I will make an interesting note, too, just as a side note. You know, America was not always that way. 
Um, in fact, let's um, let's turn to Psalm 35. Real briefly, I want to read something and make a, a comment on this, just real briefly. Psalm 35. I won't read the whole psalm, but I do want to just talk about a few verses. I'll, we'll pick out. So if we look at America and we compare America to Rome, our Roman provinces, or Asia Minor specifically, where Colossae was one of the three sort of major cities. You had Colossae, you had Laodicea, and you had Heropolis. So if we're looking at America and we're comparing that to them, let's kind of look and see how things have changed in America over the years. Psalm 35 and verse 1, Plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me, and fight against them that fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for mine help. Draw out also the spear and stop the way against them that persecute me. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. Actually, I'm just going to go ahead and read this. This is really good. Verse 4. Let them be confounded and put to shame that seek after my soul. And let them be turned back and brought to confusion that devise my hurt. Let them be as chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. And let their way be dark and slippery. And let the angel of the Lord persecute them. For without cause they have hid for me their net in a pit, which without cause they have digged for my soul. Let destruction come upon him at unawares, and let his net that he hath hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, and shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee? which delivereth the poor from him that is too strong for him, yea, the poor and the needy from him that spoileth him. False witnesses did rise up, and they laid to, to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, and I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. I have behaved as though he had been my friend or brother, that bowed down heavily, as one that had mourneth for his mother. But in mine adversary they rejoiced, in my adversity they rejoiced, and gathered themselves together. Yea, the abjects gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me, and I ceased, and ceased not. With hypocritical mockers and feasts they gnashed upon me with their teeth. Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. And this is good. Verse 18 says, I will give thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee among much people. Let not them that are mine enemies wrongfully rejoice over me. Neither let them wink with the eye that hate thee without a cause. For they speak not peace, but they devise deceitful matters against them that are quiet in the land. Yea, they opened their mouth wide against me and said, Ah, ah our eye hath seen it. This thou hast seen, O Lord. Keep not silence, O Lord, be not far from me. Stir up thyself and awake my judgment, to my judgment, even unto my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to thy righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so, so would we have it. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice at mine hurt. And let them be clothed with shame and dishonor that magnify themselves against me. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them stay continually. Let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. Sir, and my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. Psalm 35 was read aloud as the opening of the first Congress in Philadelphia in 1774. So the men that were there opened this book 
the, the Scripture, the Holy Bible, and they read this chapter of Psalm, start to finish. I read once that they were that an observer of that opening of that ceremony, that Congress, said that there were men there from the Pennsylvania Dutch Quakers all the way to the most staunch Reformed Calvinists were there on their knees with tears in their eyes praying that God would hear them. Praying these prayers were Washington, Edward Rutledge from South Carolina, all these men that were of the 13 colonies that had been elected to represent the people of America had met there and were solemnly praying for God's provision in their lives. And they, and they, they read through this psalm as a prayer to God. And in, that, and in the last verse it says, My tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. So even though we may look at America today and we may say, gosh, when we think about or read about or study about the Roman Empire and the people of Rome, there's a lot of similarities. It wasn't always the case. And we'll talk maybe a little more later about perhaps some of the reasons that we've gone from 1774 to 2014 and what's transpired in those 200 plus years. But I'd like for us to consider that church in Colossae and or what they were going through and how Paul addressed their needs. You know, Paul, at the time the book of Colossians was written, was in prison. He was in a Roman prison. I've never been in prison. I hope none of you have ever been in prison. But I can imagine that being in prison is not a very fun place to be. I can especially imagine that being in a Roman prison would not be a very ideal place to be. Just thinking about, you know, just in the news lately, there have been several headlines about um, capital punishment and the death penalty and humane and humane ways to end someone's life if they've been charged and convicted and sentenced to death because of their crimes. And it's a big deal in America, which and it should be, that we don't execute someone in a way that would be unjustly cruel or unusual, as is written into our Bill of Rights, that the punishment should fit the crime. The Romans didn't think that way, surely. If you look at some of their torture techniques or some of their uh, capital punishment te- techniques, such as the cross, Imagine that the Romans weren't really interested in mercy or grace. It was a cruel place. And so Paul is in Rome at the writing of this epistle, and he sends it by way of faithful brethren to the church at Colossae, who apparently he had never even met. Uh, there are some scholars based on verse in chapter 2. says he only had heard of their faithfulness and didn't really actually know any of them. So here's Paul in this prison cell in Rome. It's dark. It's cold. He's lonely. He doesn't know when he's going to get released. Maybe he's bound in chains. But he isn't thinking about himself. He isn't praying here for his own rescue. He's praying for people that are hundreds of miles away that perhaps he's never even met. So I'd like to talk about that today. And uh, let's look at Colossians in verse 1. You know, the church in, in, at Colossae was a young church, and it was a church that had believers who were very, you know, they were very devout believers, but they were being challenged or led astray by heresy in the church. And there are several things that we'll get into that they were being led astray with, with vain religions or vain traditions of man. Uh, they were being led astray by certain philosophies that would later turn into what we know as the Gnostic philosophies of life, which basically limits the authority and the supremacy of Christ. They were being led astray by Jewish traditions uh, that were infiltrating into the church. They were saying that you have to adhere to certain Jewish rituals in order to be saved. So the church was basically getting hit hard on all sides from heresy. Well, that sounds a lot like our churches today, does it not? You know, we have churches where, you know, even in Bible-believing churches that proclaim the, the gospel, there are heresies that abound. There are children of God who are being led astray every day. So just like in the first century, it was, this was around 65 A.D., just as this church needed to hear 
Paul's letter from, to them from Rome, we need to hear that as well today. So let's just break through some of this and, and get into it together. So in Colossians chapter 1, of course, Paul starts it off as saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. You know, Paul didn't start his ministry because he needed someone's um, approval. He didn't go before some board. He didn't ask some group of men uh, if he could start preaching the word of God. He was transformed radically, as we read in the book of Acts, as he was on his way to Damascus. He was someone who was at the height of his career. He was Paul was someone who was in the upper echelon of society. He would kind of like he would be considered sort of the Harvard grad today. I mean, he was he went to the best schools. He was in the, the top of all the inner circles of, of Jewish uh, tradition with the Pharisees. And he was struck hard on the road to Damascus and said, you know, Saul, why do you persecute me? This is going to stop. You're going to change today. And you're going to turn around and your life is going to be used to my service. So Paul, as an apostle to Jesus Christ by the will of God and only by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, we're sending this letter to you the Colossians, and of course us today as well, I believe, because this letter was included into our canon of Scripture because it is what we need to hear today in 2014, just like it was in 65 AD. He goes on to say that he is writing to the saints and the faithful brethren, of course the brethren who are all yoked together because they're children of God, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, just like we are all brethren today. my family coming down from or coming down here from Chattanooga, you guys being here at Grace Covenant, we're all brethren because we're all in the kingdom of God because of the work of Christ. So he's writing to this church and saying, brethren, at this church, we are writing to you, and here's what we want to say to you. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, I think that means that he never ceased praying 24-7. That's the only thing he did. I'm sure that um, they were... Times when Paul was able to sit down and pen a letter. Of course, we know that that's true because we have the letter. But we know that Paul's heart was one of continual prayer and thanksgiving. And so Paul is continually praying for his brethren. Just like you all had your prayer request this morning of, of the folks that you had on your hearts and on your minds, Paul prayed for them always. He says that since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love which you have to all the saints. So he said, look, I'm sitting here in Rome. Epaphras, your pastor, your minister, your faithful leader there at your church, came here just to tell me of the dangers that you're facing, but also of your love for Christ and your love for one another. And I have given thanks to God continually because I heard that. It was a blessing. It was a blessing to Paul to hear that in in prison, no doubt. But this is what he is giving thanks for. So in verse 5, he says, well, in verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God. And what's he give thanks to God for? In verse 5, for the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. I love the, the way that's worded, that it's laid up. It isn't something that's just common. It's not something that's just you know, thrown around. You know, we have things that we have laid up at our home. Um, our oldest daughter, Autumn, has many things that we've bought for her over the years for her hope chest. For the hope, we lay that up so that one day she can use that. And these are things that we think are special, that they're laid up so that you know, in a time down the road, they will be special to her and her children. This is that hope that is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of truth in the gospel which is coming to you as it is in all the world, bringing forth fruit as it doth also in you. And also the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. What a blessing it is to say that these faithful brethren heard the word of truth, that they knew the grace of God in truth because God revealed it to them and, drew, and, and, and dragged them and draw them near to him. So we're starting to see a lot of similarities between that church and our churches here. Just the love, the fellowship, the fact that God has called us into his holy family and brought us all together. 
And Paul is writing saying, I'm giving thanks for that. And we should all be thankful for that. Just the fact that we have these families here today. When we leave here, that should be enough to make us thankful for the whole day that God is working in his remnant, his family, his small little remnant, just like that small little church in Colossae, that small little region of Rome in Asia Minor. You know, there are some that I've heard, I, I haven't thought too much about this, and I know that God's grace and God's sovereignty oversees everything, but there have been some commentators and theologians throughout the years that said that this was sort of a pivotal point in the history of Christianity, and that the error and the heresy in this church was so bad that it could have really ended Christianity right there had Paul not intervened with this letter and, of course, um, you know, also the letter to Philemon and the other prison letters that he wrote at that time. So, you know, we should be thankful that God has a small remnant of people like, here, like are here today to go spread his gospel and build this next generation and the generation after that for the glory of God. So Paul is very thankful for that. And he says, because I'm that thankful... Look at verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know, the children of God need to be filled with the knowledge of his will. More than we need anything else. More than we need to be filled with stats at work or you know, education here on earth. Those things are important. But more than we need to have food stored up in our pantries, our money stored up in our bank accounts. We need to be filled with the Word and the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why do we need that? Look at verse 10, that we walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's because being, we are filled with the knowledge of His will that we increase in the knowledge of God. You know, it's interesting. I, I read once that you know, we have here... This, book of six, this collection of 66 books in the Bible. And this is God speaking to us directly, His children. And I heard that there was, I think I was, I was either listening to a sermon or maybe attending a church where I heard this. But there was a pastor who made this point, and I thought it was a good one, that you know, if you imagine yourself and you're in the military, and you're in the service, and you're overseas, and it's during wartime, and you are scared, and you're alone, and you're away from your home, you're away from everything that seems familiar to you, and you're... Maybe you had a girlfriend that you thought, as soon as I get home, we're going to get married. And you wanted to get to know her better. You wanted to know her more. And, but you got shipped off 2,000, 4,000 miles away on the other side of the continent, or the other side of the world, perhaps. And while you were there, you had gone through this period of just feeling like you didn't belong there. Like it wasn't where you needed to be. It wasn't home. It didn't feel right. Everything was odd. It was a different culture. Everything just felt a little out of place. And so after you've been there a while, you get this letter in the mail. And you, and you get the letter and you actually hold it. I mean, you, you're touching this letter. So, like, here's this letter and you're holding it. And it, it looks familiar. You know, there's addresses that you recognize. You know, there's this, your city and your state. And there's this drawing. You think, oh, I just want to open this up and devour it. So you have a couple things you could do. You could either say, you know what, I really want to get to know this person who wrote this letter to me. Maybe it's that girl that, you're, you, know, that you had to leave behind. You think it's very important to me that I get to know her better and that I get this connection from home and that I learn what's going on at home and I hear all the news from home. I mean, they're going to open it up right away and devour every sentence and read it over and over again and dissect every thought and every, you know, eye that's darted and eye that's dotted with a little heart. You really want to take it in. Or you either put it on in your, in your footlocker and leave and say, I'll get to it later. I'll get to it when I can. Of course you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do the latter. That would be insane. What you're going to do is open that letter up and devour it right away. Well, that's kind of the way things are with us in our scriptures. And we have these 66 books of the Bible that have been delivered to us so that we might walk worthy 
of the Lord and know God, just like Paul is praying for us today, just like he prayed for the church at Colossae, that we'd be filled with the knowledge of his will, that we would have that connection to home. We would have that connection to where we need to be and where we should be and where hopefully through, through, through Christ's redeeming work we will be united with God one day. Well, Paul is praying in verse 10 there that we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, that we would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyness, with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and life, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. You know, the fact that we once all lived and operated in the power of darkness, and now that we've been given this glorious light, something that we should really make us pause and be thankful about today. You know, as I woke up this morning early, and we were getting ready to come down here, I walked outside and saw this really gorgeous, huge moon right off to the back of our house. And it just made me think, you know, the moon is such a draw, and it's so powerful, and it's so illuminating, that it has no light of its own. You know, the light of the moon only comes from the sun. You know, we have this moon that's 250,000 miles away from the earth. There's no light source there. There's no heat source there. The only thing that gives its value is the reflection of the sun. And so just like that today, the only thing that gives us value and lets us reflect out into the world the goodness and the grace and the mercy of the sovereign and holy God is that reflection of Christ in our lives. Because in verse 13, as Paul is saying, Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. We have that light because we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear Son. So this is Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. And I think this is Paul's prayer for us today. And that prayer is that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that we would walk worthy, that everything that we did would be in, 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 in being mindful of walking worthy to glorify God, that we would increase in the knowledge of God, and by doing that, that we would be strengthened and that we would have patience and long-suffering and joyfulness. You don't have those things without Christ. You know, when we were born, well, when man was put on this earth, Adam, he had the ability to, be, to have this unity with God that we haven't known apart from ourselves. Because of our sinful nature, we don't know what it's like to have perfect joy. We don't know what it's like to have perfect patience. We don't know what it's like to have perfect strength because all of our qualities, those attributes of God that have been translated into us or transferred to us have been tainted by the fall. But through Christ and Christ alone, we know what it's like to have patience. And, 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 and we, can re- we can recognize and be strengthened in that and have patience and long-suffering and joy. It only comes through Christ. And Paul is saying in Colossians that he's praying that for us because it's only through Christ that we're strengthened and made patient and long-suffering and joyful. All right, well, in verse 14, this kind of shifts from a prayer that, that Paul has for us today, for the church at Colossae. It shifts from that into praise. And so we're praising God in whom, or Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. powers. All things were created by him and for him. You know, we sang today that we were going to crown Christ Lord of all and that we saying hell to his power, the power of Christ. Paul is saying the same thing right here. Paul is saying that, yeah, there's been heresy introduced into your church that takes away from Christ's supremacy. 
And he doesn't even go into it. He doesn't even say it's not even worth talking about all this. He's saying, let me just say this. It's all about Christ in every single thing, in every aspect of our lives. It's all about Christ. Paul lays this down so definitively here. Of course, we know it's only through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he was able to nail this with such power and precision. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood and even forgiveness of sins who is the very image of God, the first one of every creature. And it's by him that all things were created, that are in heaven and in earth, and everywhere. Every throne, every dominion, every principality, every power is all given by Christ and Christ alone. I read this quote once by Napoleon Bonaparte who said, you know, I built my empire on power and strength. So did Alexander, and so did Caesar and Charlemagne. And we built our empires on brute force and sheer will. He said, but Christ built his empire on love and mercy and grace. And he said millions and millions of people in the world kneel down and worship Christ out of love. They worship me out of fear. You can see the difference there. Paul is saying very clearly here in verse 16 that Napoleon's power only comes from Christ. I think maybe without saying it, Napoleon's saying the same thing. He's probably feeling that. He's probably feeling the smallness of himself. No pun intended, he was rather small. He's probably feeling the smallness of himself compared to Christ. And he feels that. He feels it deeply. Verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So we need to pray today that in all things in our lives that Christ has the preeminence. You know, just like this church in Colossae who was being battered with false doctrine. And not only just that false doctrine, but just society in general. It's telling them that, you know, you need to worship that one God. That's silly. You know, Christians in Roman society were sort of marginalized. They were often called atheists. They didn't believe in the multitude of gods of Rome. They didn't believe in, if, you know, if they had a certain ailment, they would go pray to, a, you know, to, the, to the god of whatever ailments. I mean, whatever you had a need for, you know, it's like they have an app for that. You know, they had a god for that. And so these Christians were marginalized often. But, but, and we're kind of the same way today. I mean, we live in this postmodern society where just the fact that we even try to, to, to call truth truth today is ridiculed and mocked. Just like these Christians who try to worship the one true God were mocked and ridiculed. So we can take comfort in this, and we need to see, as in verse 18, that Christ is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the first, beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. You know, I read um, this quote once, and I have this as a bookmark in my Bible. I thought this was a good. Um, A.W. Tozer, who um, was a pastor, and he has, the, he has this quote on the, the position of Christ in the church, and I thought it was good. It always, often kind of keeps me grounded. The present position of Christ in the gospel churches may be likened to that of a king in a limited constitutional monarchy. The king is in such a country no more than a traditional rallying point He's a pleasant symbol of unity and loyalty, much like an old flag or a national anthem. He is lauded, feted, and supported, but his real authority is small. Nominally, he is head over all, but in every crisis, someone else makes the decisions. On formal occasions, he appears in his royal attire to deliver the tame, colorless speech put into his mouth by the real rulers of the country. The whole thing may be no more than good-natured make-believe, but it is rooted in antiquity, a lot of fun and no one wants to give it up. That's sobering to think that our churches could be in that shape in 2014. What's even more sobering to that is that our homes and our own hearts could be in that shape at times. A sentence there that says, when crisis hits, 
someone else makes the decisions. We need to ask ourselves, is that what we do? I mean, when crisis hits home for us in the Heinemann family, what do we do? Do we make the decisions in haste? Do we go and you know, do the things that we think will get us through or that will you know, make things right? Or do we look to who is really the king and should have preeminence in every aspect of our lives? Do we go to Christ and say, we lay this at your feet, at your throne of grace, and look for your direction and your leading and your calling? You know, American families, American families today, American churches today would be in such better shape if we did do just that. And we recognize that Christ is preeminent in all things. All right, so chapter 1 uh, sort of continues through this with Christ, <clears throat> with Paul, saying that he is... Um, He's praying for these Christians to be strengthened and to understand their relationship and their role as it relates to Christ and that Christ is supreme in all things. If you flip over to chapter 2, we see that Paul expresses his concern for the church in chapter 2 and he cautions against the false teachers, the Jewish leaders in the church. Uh, He cautions against the Gentiles who are introducing Gnostic doctrines into the church. And he cautions against the worship of angels in chapter 2. Let's look at um, chapter 2 and read verse... Let's move over to chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writes to the church of Colossae and says, As ye have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. And he is the head of all, principality and power. You know, we need to have ourselves rooted in Christ. In verse 7, Paul is saying that you need to have yourselves rooted in Christ. You know, we have, in our neighborhood, we have our neighborhood's a fairly new neighborhood where we live. We live in a suburb of Chattanooga, a little north of Chattanooga. And our, the developer came through and bought this, you know, acres and acres of land back around 96, so 18 years ago or so. And, of course, plowed down lots of trees. And, you know, it, it's, and then so they cut down all these old hardwood trees to make room for houses and then planted Bradford pears. Have any of you ever seen a Bradford pear? Maybe you have them in your own neighborhood. The thing about a Bradford pear, I hate them, by the way. I shouldn't... Um, and I'll tell you why. I shouldn't say that I hate them. I dislike them more than other trees, I should say. But we had this Bradford pear that was one of the first ever built in our neighborhood. And it was in our yard. And it, of course, grown there for 17 years. And it was huge. It was a massive tree. Because apparently, developers love them because they grow really quickly. And they grow fast. And they're flowery in the spring. Of course, they don't smell the greatest, I don't think. They kind of smell like you know, something kind of weird. Uh, but... They bloom, and they're very pretty when they bloom, and they're very showy, and they're very big, and they're, they, they're wide. You know, they have this wide. The problem with the Bradford pear, though, is that it's really all for looks. It's, it grows quickly. It's there. You know, one day you plant it, the next two years later, it's huge. It doesn't really have time to develop that root structure. And so three or four years ago, when I was out mowing the yard once, I noticed that I could see the roots of this Bradford pear like really close to the ground. It wasn't rooted very well. And as, I, and as the years passed, those roots became higher and higher. Either the ground eroded or the roots just kind of came up, but they were very, very shallow. This Bradford pear was not rooted deeply in the soil. But as a result of that, what happened last year, we had a, a heavy rain. We didn't even have a bad like, tornado, you know, tornadic activity or thunderstorms. It just rained a lot. So I think the tree got wet and heavy, and it split right in two. So this beautiful tree that, you know, that looks great, and everyone thinks, oh, those are beautiful trees that grow really quickly, it just split. It was, it was weak. It didn't have the foundation. It wasn't rooted 
into the soil. This is what Paul is saying that we need to do. By the way, I had to tear that tree down. It split in the middle. I had to cut it completely down. And, um, and now it's gone. I mean, that tree's not even there anymore. So Paul is saying that we need to be rooted and built up in Him. Who is Him? Christ. We need to be rooted in Christ. Our homes need to be rooted in Christ. And then we need to be established in the faith as we have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. There's thanksgiving again. We should be thankful that God gives us the ability to even understand our need of salvation and our need of Christ and our need to have our roots planted firmly in the soil. I look at verse, let's look a little further down in verse 13. So that being the case, why do we need to be rooted firmly in the soil? Why do we need Christ? Why does Christ need to be preeminent in our lives? Well, Paul is writing to the church of Colossae to say, here's why, in verse 13 of chapter 2. You, so all of us in here today, all of us at church in Chattanooga, all of these cars that are driving by, they may not even realize it, but you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. So at one point, we were all dead in our sins. Why do we need to be rooted in Christ? Because we have death as the alternative. You know, Christ died on the cross for us. He's quickened us, and our lives need to be wholly devoted to him because of that. And he says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So Paul is writing to that church, just like he's writing to our church today, to say, look, I know there's stuff out there that causes you to stumble. There are things out there that are causing you to take your eyes off Christ and Christ's preeminence, but you can't let that happen. You can't let it happen to you. You can't let it happen to your wife. You can't let it happen to your brother, your sister, your daughter, your cousin. You can't let that happen because it's too important. Because you were dead in your sins, and now you're quickened. You've been quickened and made alive again through Christ. And those sins and trespasses have been nailed to the cross. You know, I was reading uh, a book with Autumn, our oldest daughter. Um, she was reading this for a class she was taking. Um, and it was by Francis Schaeffer. It was a book called How Shall We Then Live? And it was a book about contemporary society and the sort of how the Bible and how a worldview of God and Christ's preeminence fits into our culture and our society. He did a good job going over a time period of the, you know, the 14th to the 17th century and labeling two di- different distinct paths that men took at that time. One was the Reformation, and the other was the Renaissance. And so as we talk about the cross, there was a painter that, that Francis Schaeffer talked about that really stood out to me, and you know, my wife Tara is, was as big into art. And so we got one of these art books, and we started looking through the sketchings of Rembrandt, who was a Reformation, he was a Dutch Reformed painter, he was a Christian. He was a believer. And his belief in Christ and Christ's preeminence sort of dictated what he painted and what he portrayed and the level of emotion and detail in his subjects. And so as we were looking at this painting, there was a painting called um, The Raising of the Cross. And Rembrandt actually painted himself into the picture, sort of hidden. Many people think that it was his way of saying that it was for his sins that Christ died, like it was our sins that Christ died. You know, as we look through that period, there were a lot of painters and a lot of artists, a lot of writers who, during the Reformation, they, they understood that everything that they do, all of their thoughts, all of their appeals to truth and morals, all came from Christ and Christ alone. If you compare that to the Renaissance, on the other hand, what you have in the Renaissance was sort of this, this license to do whatever. You know, there was no 
objective truth that came out of the Renaissance. It was all about the human will. It was the triumph of the will, if, if, you, if I can speak you know, in that language. There was an author that, or there was a, a filmmaker from, the, from Germany in the 1930s named Lenny Riefenstahl who wrote a, um, a piece called The Triumph of the Will, which is sort of the culmination of that Renaissance idea that man is the sinner. And she wrote that, um, or, or it was a film that she produced talking about the National Socialist Party and how through their will and through their sheer willpower and their human ability, they rose above and rebuilt Germany. And we all saw the consequences of that. We saw the, the devaluation of human life. We saw 6,000 or 6 million Jews lost their life because of that. So you can just see what happens when man chooses that path, Reformation versus Renaissance. Reformation means you hold to God's glory. You hold to God's under, controlling all things and moving in all things and being here with us today and being here with us when we're at home. And we live our lives by truth based on God's word and God's word alone. The alternative to that is death and suffering and misery. And that's a perfect example of that. Well, Paul, writing to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse um, 14, says that you know we have had our offenses and our transgressions blotted out blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. It means paying the debt. So that debt ledger that was there that had our name in it and said the penalties of our sin is death, Christ blotted that out by his work, his atoning work on the cross for us. What a, what a glorious truth that is today to know that. And Paul is writing to the church to say, don't forget that. I'm, I'm thankful for you, and I'm praying that you will be strengthened, that you will walk in his will, that you will walk in patience and joy, and that you will remember Christ in everything, that Christ would be preeminent. And why? Because he's blotted out our sins. He's drawn us to God. He's reunited us. As rebel sinners doomed to die, he's reunited us with God through his word. All right, so let's move on to chapter 3. We'll continue. As Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If ye then be risen with Christ, which we just read that we were, that Christ has blotted out our trespasses, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on the things on the earth. How hard is that for us today? There are so many distractions in this modern society, it's not even funny. You know, I wake up and the first thing I'm tempted to do is, when I turn my alarm clock off, which happens to be in my phone, I pick up my phone and read emails from work. That's like the first thing, or, or, or you know, check the status of something I'm looking at on eBay. I mean, those are our desire. Those are our natural inclinations. But, Christ, but Paul is saying here, don't do that. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And this is where Paul really writes to say, this kind of drives this home, and says, here's what you need to do. The church at Colossae, or the church at Gadsden, Alabama, or the church in Chattanooga, you need to mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication and uncleanliness and inordinate affection and evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, we need to mortify those things in our lives. We need to avoid the things that tear our families apart. And we need to help those and pray for those and strengthen families who are struggling in those areas. Brother Mike and I were talking before church started about a ministry that we both have been blessed to, um, to know throughout the years. It was a ministry that was based in Texas, San Antonio. That ministry is being torn apart right now because of fornication and uncleanliness. The devil wants nothing more than to attack the family and attack ministries and pastors and members of churches. But Paul is saying we have to mortify our members in every possible aspect. We need to be looking at things we watch on TV to say, should I even be looking at this? Should I even be thinking these thoughts? The answer is no. 
if we really think about it. And Paul is saying to the church at Colossae and to us, don't mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. He goes on to say in this that we need to love one another. And loving one another means that we pray for one another and we help one another. Just like Paul in prison is praying for these people that he doesn't even know. He's praying for them because he knows there's something bigger than Paul and bigger than Epaphras, who is the pastor of this church. It's bigger. It's bigger than all of them, and it's Christ. And he's praying for them because he knows that that's what we're called to do as we love each other more than ourselves. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he goes on to say, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, <clears throat> do all in the name of Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. He lays out this blueprint for the family and how we are to live our lives in a home. And wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. He doesn't stop there. He says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. You know, I've just been thinking lately about the family a lot and how when we look at our country, we talked earlier about 1774. We talked about Psalm 35 opening up that first Congress in Philadelphia. We talked about those men on their knees praying that God would have mercy on their country and on their families. You know, at the same time, they were sitting there praying that there was every reason for them to believe that the British troops were actually ransacking their homes and could possibly be killing their families. These men were turning their lives over to God and praying for God's guidance. How did we get to a point from 1774 to 2014 where we seem like we've cast God out of everything, where we don't care what God thinks? How did we get to that point? Well, I'm convinced that it's one family at a time. I'm convinced that America was built upon as a Christian nation by families, not by some eternal, not by some national decree. I mean, we didn't mandate that everyone be a Christian. We didn't mandate in America that everyone had to be a Baptist or a Presbyterian. In fact, there was, you know, every protection written into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights safeguards us against that very thing, that we don't have to go to church in the Episcopal Church or the Congregationalist Church up in the upper North Atlantic. But the families that made up our country were Christian. They, were, they believed deeply in the sovereignty of God. But we've gotten so far away from that. And I believe that these four verses that we just read in Colossians would go so far today to help our, fam- our families. And even those who are single, it would help them to strengthen other families within their larger family. We're all members of the church family. We're all members of an extended family some, in some way or another. You know, I read recently, <clears throat> well, you all know that there was this debate, I think it was last week or the week before that, Bill Nye and Ken Ham, you guys heard about this. It was this debate on creation. Is creation a viable model um, looking at the origins of man? And so there was this debate up at the Creation Science Museum. And I got to thinking about Ken Ham, and I got to thinking about Bill Nye. You know, and I grew up with Bill Nye on Nickelodeon, Bill Nye the science guy. I mean, hundreds and millions of kids have been informed and influenced by Bill Nye. So I am like, going to check into this guy. And so I just, you know, did a quick internet search on Bill Nye. And it got to me thinking about other people who have had an, inf- an influence in America. I got to thinking about sort of the negative influence that we've had in that time period from 1774 to 2014. I started thinking of people like Madeline Murray O'Hare. You guys ever heard that name before? She was an atheist um, from the 60s who said that um, basically her desire, her goal, her life's work was to remove prayer and God out of the public schools. She wanted her sons to grow up in a, an environment where they didn't have to worship God. They didn't have to go through mandatory scripture reading. I remember being in first grade and our teacher reading scripture to us. Um, that was in 1980. So right about the time this was happening, was I was in the middle of all that, and that ended soon after I began my public school education <clears throat> in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But Madeline Murray O'Hare had a tremendous negative influence on America. But you know what? She came from a broken home. She was married multiple times. She had multiple husbands. 
Um, perhaps if that wasn't the case, maybe she wouldn't have those thoughts. Margaret Sanger is another name that I thought of. If you don't know who that is, if you've ever heard of the term Planned Parenthood, you can thank Margaret Sanger for that. Sanger was active. Uh, she was a nurse in the late 19th century. <clears throat> she came from a large family. I think she had around 12 brothers and sisters, and her mother died while she was very young. Her father was an atheist, and so her family was broken up. Children were separated. The father couldn't cope with his mother, with his wife's death. He didn't have the hope that we have in Christ. He was lost, and he went into a deep depression. She became bitter. She blamed the fact that they had lots of children on her mother's demise. So she began her career saying that I think women should have the right to terminate a pregnancy at will, easy, effectively, or have the right to prevent a pregnancy to begin with based on contraceptive. So, so she came from a broken home as well. So those are two major influences, both resulting from a broken home. Carl Sagan, you heard that name? Carl Sagan was an atheist. He was an astronomer. He taught at Cornell University. He, um, he believed that our universe was created out of nothing. Or, well, he didn't say that it was created out of nothing. He said that it evolved out of nothing. Something had to create it. He still hasn't answered that. I don't think he can answer that. But he, can, he influenced millions of people. One of, the, one of his students actually was Bill Nye. And Sagan and Nye both came from broken homes. Carl Sagan was heavily influenced by an author named Edgar Rice Burroughs, who you may know was a science fiction writer. He also wrote Tarzan, all those series. But his science fiction work deals with the cosmos and the fact that there was no creator of the cosmos. He was heavily influenced. He, was heavily, uh, he heavily influenced um, Carl Sagan, and he came from a broken home as well. I mean, so you can start connecting these dots and seeing the brokenness of the family and how that's impacted America today. And what Paul is warning us here in Colossians is that in verse 17 of chapter 3, and that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Lord Jesus. You run your family in the name of, Lord Je- of our Lord Jesus. That you deal with your wife or your children or your brother or sister or your loved ones in the church based on our Lord Jesus. That wives submit themselves to their own husbands because the husbands are willing to die for them and love them in a way that brings them respect and love and nurture and admonition. And that fathers love their children and don't provoke their children to wrath, that they be discouraged, but they build them up and they teach them about God's Word. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'll read that and we'll close. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Talk about a father's role. I'm convinced that had the Madeline Murray O'Hares, the Margaret Sangers, Carl Sagan's, the Bill Nye's of this world, had a father and a mother who would have read and adhered to what Deuteronomy chapter 4 tells us, our country may be in a different shape. If, you know, if all of those influences were not there, things may be different today. You know, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. You know, at this point, the law had been given through um, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And this is right before the children of Israel are going into the Promised Land. Look at verse 4. Now hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. And ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all men that follow Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God, just like we're called to cleave unto our wives or our husbands, we cleave unto the Lord are alive every one of you this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should go do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom 
and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we can call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Okay, look at verse 9 and verse 10. I think this kind of connects with what we just read in Colossians chapter 3. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from the heart all the days of thy life. But teach them to thy sons and to your grandsons, to thy sons' sons. Especially the day that the Lord stood us before, or that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and they may teach their children. You now Paul is saying to the Colossian church, You're living amongst evil and evil times. You know, we had that prayer today that said, you know, we live among such filth today, and that's exactly true. The Colossian church did as well. Things aren't that different than they were in the first century Rome. You know, sure, technology has changed somewhat. If you really think about it, things aren't that different. If you look at what, 1774, we were still riding around in horses and carriages, just like we probably would have seen in the first century, although I don't know that we had domesticated horses in first century Rome. Yeah, no, we did, yeah. So things haven't changed that much. Only in the last 200 years have things dramatically changed in that respect. But people haven't changed. People are the same. The sinful nature of man is still the same. The things that plague the church today plague the church in, in 65 A.D. And Paul is saying that his prayer for us today is that we hold fast to Christ and that Christ be preeminent in all things in our lives. He's saying that we need to keep our families intact and that we need to teach our children about God and that if we do those things, one family at a time, one congregation at a time, one community and one city at a time, we can take back America for God's glory. But more importantly, we take back our homes and our families for God's glory. And we put Christ preeminent in all things in our families' lives. God bless.